We'll read this morning from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26 and reading through verse 38. Luke 1, 26 through 38. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. This is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Son of the highest, the Davidic king, the everlasting sovereign, the holy one, the son of God. The angel Gabriel uses some very exalted terms and categories as he introduces this child whose birth he is announcing. And these are titles and categories that come directly from the Old Testament that would be familiar to Mary. God had promised King David in 1 Chronicles 17, saying, And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. It's First Chronicles 17. It's a forever kingdom, a forever throne, supreme authority. God as his father, he, God's son. Well, you can see that What the angel is announcing is firmly rooted in those promises made to David in the Old Testament. Or consider this passage from Isaiah chapter 9, which we're very familiar with. But as I read it, I'll, I'll put the emphasis on those words that are used by Gabriel in his announcement to Mary in Luke 1. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David 
and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. According to the angel Gabriel here in Luke 1, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made to King David and to the nation of Israel as a whole, promises of an everlasting king on whom the fate of Israel, God's people, and the fate of the world depend. Even more, he is the son of the highest, the son of God. Therefore, he is entitled to the same glory, honor, and worship that is due to God alone. Now, our sermon this morning is a continuation of our first Sunday series examining the Apostles' Creed. I'm not just randomly preaching a Christmas sermon in the middle of March. We're continuing a series through the Apostles' Creed, looking each month at the next line in the Creed. And because March is the third month, we're in the third line of the Apostles' Creed. This is part of the largest section of the creed. Uh, We've seen that the creed has a very Trinitarian shape to it. The first line deals with God the Father. The majority of the, the middle portion of the creed deals with the Son, and then later we'll deal with the Holy Spirit. But here's the statement we are examining this morning. I believe in Jesus Christ, now here's our, our line, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, even though we are dealing with the Son in this passage, you can see that there's a reference here to the Holy Spirit. The Son was conceived by the Holy Ghost. And so while we are concerned with Christ, with Jesus, uh, in this portion of the creed, we'll see that all three members of the Trinity are addressed here and are active in the birth of the Savior. Let's begin with a look at the announcement that Gabriel makes to Mary, and then we'll focus our attention specifically on verse 35. But Gabriel appears to this this young Hebrew girl named Mary, who we are told is a virgin. She is betrothed or engaged to be wed to a man by the name of Joseph. Both, it seems, are of the house of David. They're in that, that line descending from King David. They're of the royal line. The angel comes and he greets Mary and he calls her blessed and highly favored. And to our ears, that doesn't sound strange because we read this every year at Christmas and and various times. and, and, And so we're familiar with it. But to Mary, she's wondering, what does this angelic messenger mean? In what way is she highly favored or blessed? The angel soon answers her unspoken question, telling her that she's found favor with God that she will soon conceive and give birth to a son, and she is supposed to name him Jesus. Now, again, uh, Jesus is the name we're very familiar with. We think of Jesus as the name of our Savior, but we need to understand it's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua. And so, again, the, the angel telling Mary to name her child Jesus is not really that unusual. It's the name Joshua. There are several passages in the New Testament where the Greek word Jesus is used to refer to individuals other than Christ who bear this name. But the name does mean, even in the Hebrew and especially in the Greek, it means God saves or a Savior has come. In verses 32 and 33, the angel says this, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, 
And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now this is fairly astonishing. And I wonder what Mary must have thought as she heard these words, that the baby that she is to bear will be the fulfillment, as we have seen, of of the promises made to David, made to the nation through the prophet Isaiah of the coming Messiah, a king who will sit on the throne forever. He will reign everlastingly in righteousness and justice. And the Most High is a name that is given to God throughout the Old Testament, but particularly in the book of Daniel, God is referred to as the Most High. And so there's a a prophetic eschatological overtone to this. You're going to conceive and give birth to a child that is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He's ushering in the promise of the new covenant, of a new era for the people of God. That would be quite astonishing to hear for a young woman. The baby will be the promised king. More than that, he will be the son of the Most High who rules over the nations and over history. Throughout the book of Daniel, the Most High God is lifted up as the one who rules over Babylon the Great. He rules over the various nations of this world. He rules over the historic timeline, telling Daniel ahead of time what will become of various nations. And so for this baby conceived in her womb to be the son of the Most High is to say not only is he the fulfillment of these promises, but he is one who will rule not only over the house of Jacob, but over the nations of the world, over history itself. And he will rule without end everlastingly. And he will rule over the house of Jacob, over a unified people of God. The nation had been divided for centuries at this point. The northern tribes lost, scattered amongst the nations. The tribes of Benjamin and Simeon more or less absorbed into the tribe of Judah. But this child is to rule over the entire house of Jacob, over all the people of God, restored And he is to rule everlastingly, no end to his reign. And so Mary's question is, how can this be? I've never known a man. She doesn't question the restoration of the people of God. She doesn't question the reestablishment of the throne of David, even with the might of the Roman Empire bearing down on Israel. She doesn't even question the idea that this child would reign forever. She questions, how am I going to get pregnant in the first place? Her concern is not eschatological, it's immediate. How can this be? How can this happen? Gabriel answers this important question in verse 35. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, there are two parts to the angel's answer. The first part is an answer to her question of how. How will this happen? How will she get pregnant, seeing that she is a virgin and has not been with a man in that way? His answer is, by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit of God. The second part of his response is to explain what that means. What, what are the implications of the fact that she will get pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit? 
because this conception would take place not in an ordinary fashion, but by the power of God working through the Spirit. Therefore, and this is important, therefore, because of that, the nature of this child's conception, therefore, he will be that Holy One, the promised Redeemer, Messiah, everlasting King. He will be the Son of God. Now, I want to look at this message here in verse 35 in three ways. First, I want to discuss the mystery of Christ's conception, then the necessity of the virgin birth as a doctrine, and then our hope in the identity of Christ. And what I mean by the mystery of Christ's conception is that it came about in such a way that we can't really understand it. It's a miracle. It's, It's unexplainable by science. Now, I want to qualify that a little bit because, to be honest, science can't really explain a normal baby's conception. Science can explain the mechanics of it, the biology of it, but science can't explain why a human baby is essentially different than an animal baby. Why is a human baby different than a puppy or a kitten? Science can't explain that. It can explain the biology of conception, but it cannot explain that the point of human conception, it's more than just a physical being that comes into existence. It's a spiritual being. There is a new spiritual creature that is conceived with, as our confession says, a reasonable and immortal soul. Science can't explain that. Science cannot explain the spiritual. This is why we use the phrase, the miracle of birth, because it's a miracle. A new human is conceived with an immortal soul, one that will live on after this physical life. Dogs and cats have bodies. They have minds, even personalities, but they do not have souls. The scripture talks about the spirit of the animal that returns to the dust, but the spirit of man returns to God who made it. The animals do not live on after death, but man is intrinsically different than the animals. We have a soul that lives on either for everlasting punishment or for everlasting glory. That is the work of God in some mysterious and miraculous way. And we don't understand it. Science can't explain it. We take it by faith because God's word says that it is so. So every conception is a miracle in that sense. But then you have the special cases And we've seen many of them in the last years. We went through the book of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, Elkanah and Hannah, and the birth of Samuel, the prophet, or here in Luke 1, Zacharias and Elizabeth. In each of these cases from Genesis 16 through to Luke 1, the ordinary process of conception is not working as it should. There's barrenness. The woman cannot become pregnant. Sin has affected not only the purity of our spirits and our souls, but it has broken the physical world in which we live so that things don't always work as we should. Any of us who have gotten out of bed in the morning and felt a pain in our knee or our back for no explainable reason understand this world is broken. Sin has affected us in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. So in all these cases, the couple is barren. They're unable to get pregnant for one reason or another, but irregardless of the physical reasons that the will of God 
was that they would be barren in that moment so that he could display his might and his glory in bringing about a miraculous conception, opening the womb and allowing these barren couples to give birth in answer to the promises that he had made to them. And so these are truly miraculous conceptions and births. Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 when Isaac was born. Verse 7 here in Luke 1 says that, uh, Elkanah, uh, that Zacharias and Elizabeth were both well advanced in years. They were elderly and had been barren their entire married life. And yet here they are, they conceive and are bearing a son, John the Baptist. So we might call these conceptions miraculous. God worked through the physical processes to cause fertility in those who were otherwise unable to bear children. But with Mary, the situation is different. With the conception of Christ, something even greater is happening. See, Mary's young, and we have no indication that she's barren. That's not the issue. The issue is she's a virgin. So when she conceives a child, God hasn't worked through the natural processes to fix what was broken. Rather, he has worked apart from the natural processes. He's done something entirely new, something entirely miraculous. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. These two lines are loaded with Old Testament significance. The term Holy Spirit is one we're very familiar with, especially in the New Testament. But it is used in the Old Testament only three times, but it is used 93 times in the New Testament. But the Spirit of God is spoken of throughout the Old Testament over 80 times. The Spirit of God, the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Holy God, and the Holy Spirit three times. So the concept of the Spirit or the Holy Spirit is not unfamiliar. It is an Old Testament concept that Mary would recognize. And the language of the Spirit coming upon someone is language she would be familiar with from the stories of the Old Testament. When the prophet Samuel anointed Saul to be the first king over the nation of Israel, he gave him this sign. He told Saul that later that day he would encounter the sons of the prophets. And when he did, then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. 1 Samuel 10, 6. The Spirit of the Lord would come upon Saul, and it would be like he was an entirely new person. He would prophesy with the sons of the prophets. The prophet Ezekiel declares at one point, Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, Speak, thus saith the Lord. And so the prophet speaks the words of God because the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him. Isaiah prophesied concerning the Messiah, concerning the Christ who would be born, saying, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So the idea of the spirit of the Lord coming upon someone isn't foreign to a young Hebrew girl who has heard the scriptures read every week in the synagogue. But in Isaiah 32, we find a passage with even stronger ties to the coming of the Messiah. Here, the prophet tells the people of Israel that there will be barrenness in their land until... The Spirit is poured upon us from on high. 
and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. You see, we have the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, and associated with it are the promises of fruitfulness, justice, righteousness, peace, assurance. These are all things that are associated throughout the Old Testament with the reign of the promised Messiah, the restoration of the people of God, peace for the nation, righteousness and judgment. And they're being inaugurated in the birth of this child that Mary is to conceive. And he will reign on the throne of David as the Messiah forever. The wilderness becomes fruitful and brings forth justice as its fruit. The field that was barren brings forth righteousness and that righteousness flowers into peace. This isn't a promise of physical prosperity, but of spiritual fruitfulness. The Apostle Paul will later describe the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the church, but it begins with the child that Mary will conceive. But perhaps the most dramatic and well-known example of the Spirit coming upon someone in the Old Testament is of the judge, Samson. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart. With his bare hands, he tore a lion apart because the Spirit of the Lord had come upon him with great power. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, it happened with great power. It strengthened him with supernatural strength. It's the power of the Spirit that seems to be in view here in Luke 1, I think. Consider what Luke writes in Acts chapter 1. Christ tells his apostles to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Spirit, saying, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The exact same language that Luke uses here in chapter 1. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The, The power, the strength for God's people to take the message of Christ to the world comes because the Holy Spirit of God has come upon them. It's a power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So how will Mary, a young virgin, conceive the promised Messiah? By the overwhelming power of the Holy Spirit coming upon her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Again, this idea of the power of the highest, of the the most high God overshadowing Mary is laden with Old Testament significance. In the book of Daniel, it is declared that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. It's the power of the Most High God who rules over the earth and over history that will now overshadow this young girl so that she conceives the Messiah. The only other place that Luke uses this word overshadowed is in describing what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. A cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now this puts us in mind of the cloud descending on the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament. 
It's a manifestation of the presence and the glory of the Almighty God. God's power is so much greater than we are. His glory and splendor so far above us that a cloud is the only appropriate image to remind us that we are as far beneath Him as the earth is beneath the clouds. But the shadow of His glory, the shadow of His power, is enough to provide safety and refuge for His people. In Psalm 91, it says, Call Jehovah thy salvation. Rest beneath the Almighty's shade. In His secret habitation dwell and never be dismayed. There no tumult shall alarm thee. Thou shalt dread no hidden snare. Guile nor violence can harm thee in the eternal safeguard there. And this is what Mary does. She's told that the power of the Most High will overshadow her. The Spirit of God will come upon her in great power, and she will conceive and give birth to a son who will live forever and reign as over the restored kingdom of God. And having this assurance from the angel, Mary responds with humility and meekness in verse 38. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. The conception of Christ was an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit of God, apart from natural processes, to bring about the birth of the promised Messiah. It's a mystery and a miracle, and it is essential to our salvation. Gabriel told Mary, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you, which is to say, Emmanuel. Then the angel continued, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And you have to wonder if Mary, upon hearing these words, recalled the oft-quoted passage from Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Why a virgin conception and birth? It was necessary that the Messiah, who would offer himself in the place of sinners to just satisfy the demands of divine justice, it was necessary that he be a perfect human. He couldn't be less than human. In Hebrews, we're told, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It was humans who sinned, not bulls and goats and lambs. For human sin, the sacrifice of a perfect human was what was required. The purpose of the sacrificial system of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament was not to atone for sin. It was to remind the worshipers of their sin, to remind them of their need for redemption by the promised Messiah who would come. Something better was coming than the animal sacrifices. In other words, the law and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a type, and Christ is the antitype. 
He is the substance. The sacrifices are but a shadow meant to point us towards Christ and towards his perfect sacrifice. It was only the sacrifice of a perfect, sinless human that was able to atone for the sins of humans. And since all men inherited a sin nature from Adam, it was necessary that God himself should take up a sinless human nature, live a sinless human life, and then die a sinless death. In doing so, he offered himself as an acceptable substitute in the place of sinners. See, the incarnation, the virgin birth is important because it had to be a sinless human who died for sins in order to save sinners. There are no sinless humans, so God had to do it himself. The conception by the power of the Holy Spirit and the birth to a virgin is how God accomplished that. It was necessary that Christ partake of our human nature fully. If he was less than human... His sacrifice would not atone for our sins, and we would have no hope of forgiveness. He had to be fully human, and yet it was necessary that he not just be human, but that he could not partake of our corrupt human nature. It would be impossible for the holy God to be perfectly united to a sinful human nature. He needed a human nature that was uncorrupted by sin, And our sin nature is inherited from Adam. And so God worked around the natural course of conception to bring about the conception of Christ and the virgin birth in order to give Christ a human nature that did not inherit the corruption of sin from Adam. The birth of Christ was a miracle performed by the power of God apart from natural generation so that he could fully partake of human nature but not the corruption of sin, and so be a perfect, sinless sacrifice for the redemption of his people. This is why this doctrine of the conception by the Holy Ghost and the birth to a virgin is included in the Apostles' Creed. It's that important. If you deny the virgin birth, you realize what you do to the gospel? If you deny the virgin birth, you're denying the very deity of Christ perfection of Christ. If you deny the virgin birth, he's no longer a perfect and acceptable sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Instead, he's a normal human like the rest of us who has inherited a sin nature. And if Christ sinned even one time, then his death is payment for his sin, not ours. So to deny the virgin birth is to deny the gospel. It's to deny the the power of the Holy Spirit It's to say that there is no good news. The virgin birth brought about by the power of the Spirit is an essential truth that must be believed and embraced by Christians in all times everywhere. Now the second half of the angel's answer to Mary is equally important. Therefore, because of the conception by the Holy Spirit and because of the virgin birth. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. This is our hope in the identity of Christ, the sinless human necessary as an acceptable sacrifice. But Adam had been a sinless human, and then he sinned. And he 
was in need of a savior. If Christ had been merely born as a sinless human, what hope would we have that he would have succeeded where Adam failed? But the angel concludes that the work of the Holy Spirit was even more mysterious than we might think. It wasn't just that he brought about the the conception and the birth of a sinless human. It was that the Spirit imparted at the moment of conception was not like the spirits imparted at the conception of ordinary human babies, but instead it was a joining of the divine nature to the human nature. It was the spirit of the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the author of life, the creation, the creator of the universe, joined to a human nature. He is the anointed one, the promised Messiah, the Christ or the Holy One. Psalm 71, verse 22, Thee, even thy truth, I'll also praise, my God with psaltery, thou Holy One of Israel, with harp I'll sing to thee. Throughout the Old Testament, God is known as the Holy One of Israel. So when Gabriel announces that this child who is conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit is the Holy One, He is stating that the child is very God of very God, as the Nicene Creed puts it. Christ is able to succeed where Adam failed to live a life free from sin because he is the Holy One of Israel, the eternal God, the eternal divine joined to a sinless human nature. His divinity upholds and preserves the purity of his humanity. Apart from that, he would have fallen into sin the same as Adam did. But it was his divine nature upholding and preserving his human nature that enabled him to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice in our place. These things are only possible because he is the eternal God. So it is because of this identity of Christ that we have hope. Because he is the Holy One of Israel, He is holy and full of divine power to resist sin, to endure suffering, and to redeem those who are under the curse of the law. Psalm 130 says, Lord, who shall stand if thou, O Lord, shouldst mark iniquity? But yet with thee forgiveness is that feared thou mayest be. I wait for God, my soul doth wait, my hope is in his word. More than they that for morning watch, my soul waits for the Lord. I say, more than they that do watch the morning light to see, let Israel hope in the Lord, for with him mercies be. Because he is the Holy One of Israel, we have the hope of forgiveness and mercy. He is the eternal Son of the Father. That Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Because he is the Son, he inherits He is an inheritance that comes to him from the Father. Psalm 2, speaking of the Son, says, This his word shall be made known, this Jehovah's firm decree. Thou art my beloved Son, yea, I have begotten thee. All the earth at thy request I will give thee for thine own. Then thy might shall be confessed and thy foes be overthrown. Therefore, kings, be wise, give ear, hearken, judges of the earth. Learn to serve the Lord with fear, mingle trembling with your mirth. Kiss the sun, lest o'er your way his consuming wrath should break. 
but supremely blessed are they who in Christ their refuge take. The world is his by right of inheritance and all that are in it. He is the son, the only son of the father. And so he inherits all things from his father. Eternally, continuously begotten of the father according to his divinity, sharing in the one divine essence with the Father and the Spirit, but then begotten in time by the power of the Holy Spirit, working through the Virgin Mary. I believe in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. He is the eternal Son of God, begotten by the Father, conceived by the Holy Spirit, thus the fullness of the Trinity at work in the birth of of the Messiah, an incarnation of our Savior to bring about the redemption of his people. Colossians 1, 26 and 27 says, The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The miraculous conception and virgin birth of Christ are truths to be believed that are essential to the Christian faith and which fill us with the hope of glory, that is, with the hope of beholding His glory face to face in the life to come, redeemed as His people, as His sons and daughters, adopted into His family and made citizens of His everlasting kingdom cleansed from the stain of our sins, washed clean by his blood, shed for us, made holy by his spirit at work in us, the same spirit who was at work in him. Jesus' very birth came about by the power of the Holy Spirit. His ministry was marked by the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Luke records two chapters later that at his baptism by John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. And then just one chapter after that, Luke again writes, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for forty days by the devil. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus resists the devil making use of the written word of God, which should serve as a lesson to us. If the Spirit of God works through the word in the life of the Son, how much more so must the Spirit work through the word in the lives of those who depend upon the Son for our salvation? So Christ is conceived by the Holy Spirit, blessed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism, filled with the Holy Spirit in his ministry, led by the Holy Spirit, and he has promised to fill his people with that same spirit. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Isaiah 44, 3. Jesus promised to send the spirit with such abundance that his followers would not have just a little bit of the spirit, but would be immersed in the spirit baptized in the Spirit. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, immersed fully in the Spirit, filled to overflowing. 
The same power that brought about the miracle of the virgin birth is at work today in the lives of those who trust in Christ and are united to him by faith. Galatians chapter 3, Christ having redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The Spirit works repentance in our hearts, enables us to believe in Christ, applies the work of redemption to us that we are saved works the grace of adoption in us, sanctifies us in the truth, and seals us against the day of redemption. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This doctrine of the conception of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and his birth to the Virgin Mary, partaking of our human nature, but not of the corruption of our nature. This doctrine must be believed and become the foundation of your hope if you are to enjoy the promise of life everlasting. So as we prepare to take communion together in a few moments, I ask you to examine your heart this morning. Have you believed in Jesus Christ who was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary? Have you trusted in his holy, sinless life and death for your salvation apart from your own works and apart from your own merit? If you have, then you have received his Holy Spirit and been sealed against the day of redemption at the great judgment seat of Christ. The Holy Spirit in you, causing you to believe, sanctifying you in the truth of the word, this is your guarantee that you belong to Christ that you will be redeemed on that day, that he will claim you as his own because he has purchased you with his blood. If you have not yet believed in Christ and received the Holy Spirit, then I encourage you this morning to turn to him in faith, to trust in him, to hope in him, to rest securely in him rather than yourself. But if you have believed and received the Spirit, then we welcome you to partake of communion with us as we celebrate Christ our Savior, our Redeemer, given for us as a perfect sacrifice that we might be made holy and righteous in him. Let's pray.